Morene Tfano. I'm uh, Richard, and it's my pleasure to continue this series today um, on the road, following Jesus on the road to the cross. That's the series we've been going through. Let me ask you, hands up, are there any fans here of a TV show called The Mandalorian? Quite a lot, if you look around, it's quite a few. Um, so for those that know, what is the kind of refrain, it's not exactly a catchphrase, it's not that kind of show, but what is the refrain that this is the way? You hear this all the time. Let, let me show you. It's just a short little clip. Reserve some for the foundlings. As it should always be, the foundlings are the future. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. Cool. Lights back up. Thank you. This is the way. And it's so cool. It's so cool when they say this, because um, one thing about the Mandalorian, that guy with the helmet, well, they got a helmet on, but the, all Mandalorians, um, Mando, one thing about him is he, he says, like, it's not, we're not, a, um, we're not a race, I think is what he says, we're not a race, we're a creed. He follows a kind of religion, if you like. Now, it's a warrior religion, it's, it's very problematic, but, but, um, but they always say to each other, this is the way. And, um, and it's kind of like an exhortation. It's quite hardcore. It's like when, sometimes when they have to do hard things that their, their faith, if you like, requires of them, they say, this is the way. It's like, there's no, no question about it. It's no like debating, well, should I, shouldn't I? I don't know. They just say, this is the way, and they just get on with it. And one thing um, I like about this when I hear it is that um, Christians have often being called followers of the way, because Jesus himself described himself as the way. If you look in the book of Acts, for example, Christians are described as followers of the way. And I like it because sometimes we slip into a way of thinking about being a follower of Jesus as actually it's more like a, a one-time deal, you know, that uh, one time I, I prayed a prayer and then I was done and I got my pass to eternity and then and that's it, you know. Um, or I went forward at an altar call and then I was done. Um, but to talk about it as the way is to kind of convey that idea that this is a, an ongoing way of living. It's an ongoing lifestyle, for want of a better word. Um, and, and that is part of what we're remembering in this series is that we are called to follow Jesus. Um, we are followers of the way, on our way, on the road. And um, I know it might seem kind of goofy to link it to Star Wars. Um, if you feel that it is goofy, um, I'm going to get you all to say it quite a bit um, at some point. So um, prepare yourself. But, um, but yeah, it conveys that idea that this is an ongoing thing. It's a, it's a whole life that we're called to and not just a, a one and done kind of deal. So Jesus is the way. He has a way. We're following in the way. Uh, but sometimes Jesus' way might feel a little bit like this, this way. Uh, I, I get this a lot, um, you know, with maps going on my phone, and I go to Tauranga a couple of days a week, and I'm always going off on some, I just still don't know Tauranga that well, so I go off on some sort of tangent, and it starts rerouting. Um, or if you do this in Auckland, you know, you take a, a wrong turn, it starts rerouting, and then you're 45 minutes late, you know, because you just can't get back on course. Sometimes we are following Jesus as a surprising way. It's a way we weren't expected. 
to go or weren't expecting. And that's a little bit of, uh, I think, what comes through in our passage today. Our passage today is Luke chapter 19. And before we get into Luke, I just want to kind of set it up a little bit by talking about um, symbolic action. There are some things that we can do that have a kind of meaning. Uh, Like, let me give you an example. In Hong Kong a few years ago, there were um, pro-democracy protests or demonstrations, and uh, people, to show their solidarity and support for this movement, um, carried umbrellas. These umbrellas were initially um, to keep away tear gas from the police, but then they became a symbol of the movement, and they they are called, um, or were called, the umbrella movement. Um, or in Thailand, again, uh, pro-democracy uh, protesters were using a three-finger salute, which um, comes from the Hunger Games. Um, and it's, again, it's uh, just an action, you know, simple thing, three fingers, but it, it means something, it carries some kind of meaning. Um, in 2013, after a young black kid in the States called Trayvon Martin was murdered, by a guy who said, well, he looked suspicious because he was wearing a hoodie. Um, Bobby Rush, who is a congressman, got up and wore a hoodie. He actually had it under his normal attire and took it off at the stage and put the hood up. And he said, just because I'm wearing a hoodie doesn't make me a criminal. And he got in trouble for it too. Um, In Burkina Faso, in 2014, again, demonstrators against the the sitting president at the time, they carried wooden spoons from the kitchen um, as a, as a uh, symbol of their uh, protest. And I'm not sure why it was wooden spoons, but you know, a wooden spoon is just a wooden spoon until it means so much more. Normally an umbrella just means you're trying to keep the, the rain off, but in certain contexts, it can carry a lot more meaning. And the passage that we're gonna look at today, Jesus is engaging in some kind of symbolic action, things that mean stuff. Um, and you kind of need to be clued into it to understand what it actually means. Now, the passage today is quite long if we were going to read it all, but we're not going to read it all. We'll read um, a selection of it. But let me just kind of summarize the first part for you. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem, as you know, and as he approaches, he tells a couple of his disciples to go ahead and get a, a colt, is what it says here, or a donkey, Um, elsewhere, and um, they bring him this donkey, and he sits on it, and he rides into Jerusalem, and you might just sort of think this is a mode of transport, right? Like, Jesus is tired, ride a donkey, why not? But this actually has symbolic action. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem on this donkey, uh, people are lining the streets, they're throwing down their cloaks, and they're praising Jesus. This evokes or brings to mind this passage from uh, Zechariah chapter 9. So this is an Old Testament prophet. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'll take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. In that world, in that culture, if a dignitary was riding in on a horse, it meant military campaign. If a dignitary is riding in on a donkey, it means that, means that this is peacetime. And when Jesus rides in on this donkey, again, it's not, it's not just transportation. It's 
carrying all this uh, symbolism. It's carrying this idea that he is a king, yes, but he's not a warring king. He's a peaceful king. And that itself is kind of surprising because a lot of people at the time would have felt, yes, we need a king. And the word that uh, the Jewish people used to describe this king that they believed would be sent by God to rescue them was Messiah. They said, yes, we need a Messiah, but he's gonna be like, lead a military campaign, you know, and that's what it's gonna take to overthrow Rome. And here Jesus comes in as Messiah, and people are recognizing him as Messiah, but he's on a donkey, he comes in peace. And interestingly, he's crying. It says, now this is starting in verse 41 for those of you who are following along. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So Jesus is crying And it's surprising because he's being celebrated by people as he comes in. You know, we sometimes refer to this story as the triumphal entry, and yet Jesus isn't acting triumphant. He's crying because he knows what's coming. He knows he's going to the cross and going to be killed. But I sense here that his tears are actually more for his people, not for himself. He knows what's coming for them and its destruction. And that's precisely what happened just a few decades afterwards. The fall of Jerusalem happened in AD 70. Rome and the Jews were at war with each other, and Rome besieged Jerusalem for about seven months. The famous historian, Jewish historian from the time, um, Josephus, he said that there was um, murder and famine and even cannibalism during this time, and he said that a million people died. Now, some modern historians think that that's maybe too many, but the point is, a lot of people died, it was horrific, and what Jesus predicted would happen is exactly what happened. There was, it was just utter rubble, utter destruction, and Jerusalem was no more. So Jesus knows that is coming, and He carries on, the story or the passage carries on immediately, so he's gone into Jerusalem, and then we get Jesus at the temple. And it says this, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It's written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now again, you might ask, what is Jesus doing here? Is he, he's just having some kind of hissy fit, or for some reason, we're not sure why, but it's not, it's not like that. It's not random like that. It's symbolic action. Again, he's doing something that in the context actually would have um, made a lot of sense to people and carried a lot of extra power. Um, this phrase, you might notice these little quotation marks around a den of robbers. My house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. These are quotations. They almost act like a little bit of a hyperlink. Actually, sorry, 
the, the real hyperlink is a den of robbers. And I say it's like a hyper, hyperlink because you know when you're on the internet, you like see some text that's highlighted blue and you know you click on it, it takes you to a whole other bit of information. And it acts a little bit like that when Jesus makes these quotations from the Old Testament. The quotation, a den of robbers, takes us to Jeremiah 7. So Jeremiah is a prophet, and this is what it says. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, the temple, and there proclaim this message. So God has told Jeremiah, go to the temple and and pass on this message that I have for the people. And this is what Jeremiah is to say. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Don't trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place and the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. So do the right thing, look after the poor, follow God, and, and I'll let you be here, and it'll be great. But look, you're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, a false god, and follow other gods you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name, let's talk about the temple, and say, we're safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. So when Jesus gets up and he goes to the temple like Jeremiah did, and he quotes Jeremiah, his message brings all this with it. The same kind of message where, you know, for a lot of his people, they would look at the temple and they would say, you know, God's on our side, we're right with God, everything's fine. And then they go about their business of hurting other people, of, of stealing, of oppressing uh, people who are poor and marginalized. And and not see like there's any problem here. And Jesus knew that was a problem. Jesus knew that that was kind of a kind of hypocrisy. And he's carrying that kind of message in his own day. It's symbolic action. Now, it's not like immediately he's grabbed and arrested at this moment. In fact, it just goes on to say in this passage that um, he carried on teaching there for a bit. And obviously, Jesus was quite popular in, amongst certain circles. You know, he'd just been welcomed in like a king, and people were hanging on his every word as he taught in the temple. But only, with only a few, within a few days, um, Jesus would be arrested and, and taken to the cross. This event, this temple demonstration, if you like, we call it, some call it cleansing a temple, but it might be better to think of it as a kind of temple demonstration. Uh, it was perhaps the, the kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of how the religious leaders saw Jesus and wanting him killed. This seems to be the event that kind of triggered the events that we remember at Easter, Jesus' death and resurrection. So very powerful, symbolic action, and one that Jesus knew was probably going to hurt him, you know? Jesus, as he comes into Jerusalem, he's crying for his people, but he knows where, he, where he's headed to. He knows where this message is going to land him. It's going to land him on the cross, and he knows that, and he carries through with it. 
So, this way that Jesus goes is surprising. He's on his way to Jerusalem as a king, but he's crying, and he's going to go to a cross. He's going to die. Yes, he'll come back to life, but the, the pathway there, the way there, is one of self-sacrifice, and that's surprising. It would have been surprising and was surprising, unexpected, a kind of rerouting of your expectations of, of the way of God's special king, God's Messiah. But that is the way of Jesus, and that is the way he calls us to, too. A way of, of tears, of self-sacrifice, even a way of, of death in some sense. And what does that look like? Well, I want to give a little bit of a case study, a very short case study, um, drawn from Paul in the Bible and his relationship with the church in Corinth. And we read about this relationship through the books, First and Second Corinthians. Now, I'm not going to use a whole lot of verses and, and show you where this is and so on and so on for the sake of time. And I'm drawing on some thoughts from a um, biblical uh, scholar called Whitney Willard. But there are three things that she identifies as things that uh, show how Paul embraced the surprising way of Jesus in his relationship with the Corinthian church. One is that Paul embraced low status. Paul, he kind of um, gently, not so gently, uh, makes fun of what he calls the super apostles um, when he's writing to the Corinthian church because they loved these uh, so-called super apostles who were impressive in some way. You know, if it was in our own day, they were the kind of people that were arriving in flash cars, maybe, or private jets, uh, whereas Paul was rolling up in a second-hand car. That, that's the sort of idea, you know, that Paul kind of was almost deliberately unimpressive. And the Corinthian folk were drawn to the impressive leaders and the, uh, the super apostles, as Paul mockingly calls them. And, and so for Paul, he was embracing low status because he wanted all the status, if you like, to go to Jesus. He also calls the Corinthians to embrace generosity. And his argument for that is, to, is because Jesus embraced poverty so that they might become rich. So out of their riches, they should be generous. Paul also um, embraces his weakness because he says that rather than boasting about all the things he could boast about, you know, the things he could brag about, he instead, he's going to highlight the things he's, in the areas where he's weak, his, his flaws, because in that he feels that Jesus is lifted up. There's a kind of a, a surprising way that Paul's own life and ministry goes because he's following the surprising way of a surprising king. Now, how do we go this way if the way that we're called to go is surprising, it's counterintuitive, it's painful. How do we go that way? Because every fiber of our being sometimes wants to do the exact opposite. And the, the way is often painful and it requires a, a way of being in the world that is self-sacrificial. How do we do it? Well, let's, let's think about this event and maybe this will help us think about this question. Oh, let me just say, as a, as a, a side note, because I forgot to mention it before, um, we know that the, that the um, 
fall of Jerusalem was accompanied by the fall of the temple. And in this, this is called the Arch of Titus. It's a Roman monument celebrating this victory over um, the Jews. And in it is this little panel. You can see the uh, Romans there are carrying off um, parts of the temple. They basically looted the temple and took it back with them. And you can see the menorah there, that candlestick, um, and some other artifacts from the temple there. Anyway, moving on. So how do, we, how do we do this? How do we learn to go this surprising and difficult way when it's so counterintuitive and it goes against what we would naturally do? Do you remember this event? This happened in 2009, and there, it was a plane, a flight in the States, in New York City, took off from LaGuardia Airport, and uh, just under five minutes into the flight, while it was still going up, it hit a flock of birds, actually Canadian geese, which are really, really big birds, and both engines, uh, as a result, failed, and it started to just glide and descend. And they quickly, the pilot quickly calculated that they had um, about three minutes until they would hit the ground, three minutes to figure out something to do. And we only need to remember 9-11 to remember what happens if a plane uh, collides with the ground in the middle of New York City. Thousands and thousands of people will die. It's not just about the people on board, but it's also about the people on the ground. And so the, the pilot, this guy called Chesley Sullenberger, or nicknamed Sully, he decides he can't get back to the airport. They're five minutes away, and he's only got three minutes and so he decides to land on the Hudson River, which flows through New York. And so, no doubt terrified, but able to instill or, or draw on his training and um, maintain a kind of calm, he landed the plane in the river uh, perfectly, uh, got everyone to evacuate. Everyone got out and got into inflatable lifeboats. He walked up and down the aisle a couple of times, made sure no one else was there, then he got out. And then boats came and rescued everybody, and nobody died. All 155 people were saved. And it was called the, the miracle of, on the Hudson. It was kind of, in a sense, seemingly miraculous. But there's another sense in which it wasn't a miracle. It wasn't just sort of accidental. It happened because this guy, Sully, this pilot, had trained for it. His whole life had been about flying. Uh, when he was a kid, he's obsessed with aviation. When he was 16, he was working a part-time job so that he could pay for um, lessons to learn to fly a plane. He became a pilot, uh, flew for decades, and even during that time, he worked as an um, air crash analyst um, where he was looking at air disasters and what went wrong. So he was becoming an expert in all this stuff and training, of course, in flight simulators and all that sort of a thing. So that when this happened, the almost unthinkable sort of thing happened, he was, in a certain kind of sense, prepared. And this is what he said about the experience. This is Sully speaking. For 42 years, I've been making small, regular deposits in this bank of experience, education, and training. And on January 15th, the balance was sufficient so that I could make a very large withdrawal. More recently, speaking about the importance of pilots using flight simulators, Sully said, pilots need to develop a muscle memory of their experiences so it will be immediately available to them in the future when they face such a crisis. When the crisis came, Sully had a kind of, in a sense, a kind of muscle memory. He had had the training that meant that he knew exactly what to do when the pressure was on. 
And there might be a sense in which we can train ourselves in a similar way to follow Jesus in his surprising way. Think about Lent. You know, at Lent, we, you know, historically, it's not always done in our tradition, but a lot of Christians will give up something, you know, stop eating something they like or stop doing something they enjoy for a period of time leading up to Easter. We call this Lent. You might think, why, why do we do this? Well, in a sense, it's a kind of training for following in the way of Jesus because the way of Jesus is a surprising way. It's a way that requires denying yourself at times. And so in a small way at Lent, we deny ourselves something. Now, you might think, dude, that's a bit of a stretch. Supposedly giving up chocolate is gonna mean I'm willing to like lay down my life for somebody or something like that. Like how would that ever translate to something really big and meaningful in my life? But if we incorporate these kinds of practices into our lives, fasting and that kind of thing, I don't just mean denying ourselves things for the sake of it, but I mean in a kind of small intentional way we build these practices into our lives. We are teaching ourselves that this is the way. It's a surprising way, it's a difficult way, but this is the way. It's one that sometimes requires self-sacrifice. And maybe even more importantly, being faithful in the small areas of uh, self-sacrifice, of following Jesus in the little things, being faithful in that will train us to be faithful in the big things. When the pressure comes on and Jesus asks a lot of us and we know that following Jesus is, in this season or in this situation is gonna be tough, we will have done the work, we will have done the training required to be able to do it when the time comes. I want us to think a little bit about some, as we finish up, I want us to think a little bit about some of the difficult sayings of Jesus, the, the teachings that require us to be self-sacrificing, to follow Jesus to the cross, to put ourselves to death in some sort of way. But I wanna do it in a kind of liturgical way where I say something and you say something back. This is the goofy Star Wars part, okay? But But I think it's important for us to think about this and to think about the way that Jesus calls us to and what it might take for us to train, to be ready to live out these difficult, the difficult teachings that Jesus gives us and the difficult and surprising way that he calls us to go on. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read a a saying of Jesus and you're gonna say back, this is the way. Okay, here we go. It's more blessed to give than to receive. There we go. You cannot serve both God and money. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. This Easter, as we're on the road with Jesus, let's consider the surprising, difficult way of Jesus, the surprising way he calls us to go on with him, behind him, and let's continue training for it. Let me pray. 
We pray to you the way, Jesus. And we thank you that you showed us this surprising and difficult way. Thank you that you are willing to go that way because we know that through your self-sacrifice, through your going to the cross, you are able to rescue us. In your poverty, you made us rich and we're so thankful for it. And this is the way you call us to. And it's a surprising way, it's a difficult way, and it requires our training. So Lord, we pray that you would train us and prepare us in the little things, make us faithful, we pray. And in the big things, we pray that we will be ready and faithful for those too. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ, and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.